what a great day to be gathered in God's house to honor his servants, to celebrate what the Lord has done. And we're not even done yet. Isn't that great? We've got two more hours before. <laughs> Some of you are visitors like, wait a minute, what? Did you say two hours? I'm, I'm lying. It's not two. I promise. We're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We have been studying through that, letter, uh, that historical snapshot of Jesus' life. And so each, each week we take a passage, we look at it, we try to make some application uh, to our lives. Last week we looked at the scandal of grace. I don't know if you remember that or not, maybe you listened online, but we, we looked at the scandal of grace, that Jesus came and he blew the whole religious structure out of the water because he didn't come for those who were religious he didn't come after those who were upstanding and moral. He didn't come for those who thought that all of their good deeds had earned them someplace with God. He came and he found the sinners and the tax collectors. Those who were sick and in need and he met them and he delivered grace to them. And that was an offense. A slap in the face to the religious crowd because the gospel is an offense to the religious the gospel's an offense to the religious. Have you ever attempted to share the grace of Jesus with someone who was pretty good at being religious? They have a hard time understanding why they need Jesus because they're doing okay. But the gospel is an offense because Paul says in Romans, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In the gospel message, we hear that our righteousness doesn't really matter. And all of our good deeds don't really matter. What matters, do we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ? And that is an alien righteousness. It's a separate righteousness. And it's not available through our good deeds, which is a slap in the face to people who think their good deeds are earning them favor with God. It's a scandal of grace. But to those of us who have recognized our sinfulness, who see our need for Jesus, to us are given all the riches of mercy and forgiveness. And this tension between religion, that self-righteousness of moral behavior, the tension between that and the way of Jesus is evident in the Gospel of Mark. Almost weekly we'll see this, this tension bearing out between the people who think that their good works are getting them closer to God and then the way of Jesus that says, no, no, you need to trust my good work for you. My death on the cross and laying my life down. You need me, not your good deeds. So that's where, this morning, we're going to continue this struggle between the religious power structure and Jesus. There's like five snapshots in, the, in this section of Mark. And we're, we're kind of right in the middle of them. So we're in Mark chapter 2 this morning. And we're starting verse 18. Here's what the Bible says. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while they have the bridegroom with them? They cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. We need the help of Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for what you're doing here. Lord, I pray that we would just have minds that can understand, have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Speak to us through your word, by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. First thing we're going to look at, the, my outline's all jacked up today. Those of you who are familiar with me, I don't know what I'm doing. So number one, a questionable offense. You're about, to, you're about to find out. A questionable offense, number one. The disciples aren't fasting. And the disciples of Jesus, that is, aren't fasting. They, and by fasting, it doesn't mean they've never fasted. It just means they're not in the habit of fasting. They, they make no practice of fasting, but John's disciples do, John the Baptist. And the Pharisees, they are in the habit of fasting. And they must be doing it wrong, right? Because Jesus said, when you fast, you're not supposed to broadcast it. So apparently everybody knew they were fasting, so they obviously were doing it wrong. But they were fasting. They were in the habit of fasting, of abstaining from food for the purposes of religious devotion. But, John, or, but Jesus' disciples weren't. That seems strange, doesn't it? Because everybody knew that the upstanding, moral, religious people who were close to God and spoke for God, they practiced this kind of thing. And Jesus has come to announce what? Remember, he announces, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So here's Jesus, the new king of a new kingdom. He's coming and telling us that God is doing a new thing and I'm ushering it in. And yet he doesn't do the things that we associate with religious behavior. This is confusing. This should cause them to, be, um, to misunderstand his disciples and their actions. There's a little bit of background here. R.C. Sproul was helpful for me. Fasting was only required of Jews during the time leading up to the Day of Atonement, but the religious folks, like religious folks do, decided to add to those requirements. There was a list of things they weren't allowed to do, and they created a new list to keep you just, just to be careful so you don't get too close to sinning, so they created another barrier for you. The Jews began to fast on days of importance as an expression of repentance, although it was not required. And John the Baptist, well, the Pharisees asked about him. His disciples practiced fasting too, but John was an ascetic. He was given to things like self-denial. The guy, the guy wore, like, camel skins and ate locusts and honey and stuff. Like, he, they followed in his example. But no one had a stronger fasting game than the Pharisees. They fasted twice a week, and they considered it a badge of honor. They considered their religious activity a statement of their religious status. Okay, now we're getting close to home here, aren't we? Some of us grew up in religious systems that did the same thing. That taught us that our acceptance with God and whether or not he was happy with us was entirely dependent on whether or not I had completed the checklist of religious tasks today. So someone asked the question, right? Similarly to what we saw last week, Jesus, whom, whom apparently perceives himself to be a religious authority, Jesus doesn't fast and doesn't require his, people, his disciples to fast, but the Pharisees who are associated with religious leadership are fasting, so why? So somebody has the, the gall to stand up and say, could, could you answer this question for me? Why is it that all these other religious people are fasting, but your disciples are not? And Jesus gives an answer, kind of. It's an answer in imagery. 
like he does, like he does. And to those who have and possess the Spirit, the Spirit gives help to understand. To those without, it's just a cluttered mess and you're wondering what it means. So he steps to the plate and he gives an answer that's veiled in some imagery. To, to have heard it live would have no doubt been kind of, kind of befuddling to the religious crowd. And surely they wouldn't have understand all that he was alluding to. But hopefully the biggest, most important things would be clear. And that might be true of us today. It might be challenging to get what he's after. But the biggest, most important things are going to be clear. So the first thing he does is he talks about the wedding guests and the groom. He said, he said well, the, he can't, the guests, the guests, the guests at the wedding feast, they can't fast while the groom is with them. As long as they have him with them, they're not going to fast. But there's a time coming when the groom won't be there and then they can go on fasting. Now, the wedding celebration in Israel was not like our wedding celebrations today. Honestly, if, if I'm working with a couple to prepare for a wedding, we're shooting for the 45-minute mark. And some of you know that because I've performed your, your wedding ceremonies. We're not trying to stretch it too far beyond that. People aren't really excited about getting here. They want to get to the food and the dancing and the celebrating. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not trying to sit here for an hour and a half, two hours, and let this thing drone on. Culturally, we get a little antsy about and I start worried about, about groomsmen passing out. It's always the groomsmen. Those guys, seriously, who, just don't lock your, your knees. Like, it's okay. It's always the groomsmen. So I worry about them passing out up here. But at this time in Israel, a, a wedding feast is like a week-long celebration. This is no quick affair. This is a seven-day party. Eating and drinking and dancing and laughing and a wedding and the celebration that accompanied it. This was not the time to abstain. It would have been against protocol. It would have been considered offensive to abstain from the food that is offered at this celebration. After going to all that trouble to provide for you his guests, it would be rude to refuse the food that the host was giving. No, no, the wedding feast is not the time for a diet. It's a time to eat. You can diet later. You give your whole life to diet. Some of you, some of you are the kind of people who diet on vacation. Shame on you. Shame on you. There, I look forward to vacation for that reason. I, I work out and go to the gym all year just for that purpose. So that for that week or two weeks or whatever it is, I'm just going to eat and eat and then I'm going to eat some more. Right? It is a time of celebration. This last week, this last summer, I'm not, I just told my mother-in-law this the other day, last summer, I gained 11 pounds on my vacation. That's right. That is next level vacationing right there. That's the way it's done. Right? It is not the time that's not the time. It's not the time. Thanksgiving dinner is not the time for you to whine to your family about the diet you're on. Eat the turkey. It's right in front of you. There is a time when you will abstain and, yes, but it's not during the feasts. There are times where you can do that, but not when the purpose of the gathering is to celebrate together and enjoy the goodness of God without those hindrances. So this, <laughs> that's right, I'm getting hungry now. There will, so what he's saying is, there will be a time when the groom is no longer with you. Well, who's the groom? In the Old Testament, the bridegroom is identified with God. But in the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the, the bridegroom. And the church is his bride. 
And this feast that we're being invited to by grace and through faith, this culmination, the wedding supper of the Lamb, all of the, the whole focus of, of human history is gearing towards this celebration. And here is the bridegroom at, at peace and at home with his people. And he says to them, listen, the bridegroom is here. It's the wedding celebration. There's no need to fast today, but there is coming a day when he will no longer be with them. And we are today in that day. Jesus is no longer here physically. His followers fast regularly. We make it a practice. Sometimes it's a corporate fast where we do it together. Sometimes it's individual where we abstain from food to seek the Lord's discernment and direction. We have a big decision we're making. We need insight into the scriptures. We practice that regularly because he's not physically here to go ask. What is all that? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, there is a time to abstain from food, but it's not at the wedding. When the bridegroom is with you, this is not the time. Basically, your way of understanding and relating to God is not compatible with the new way that Jesus is bringing. They're two different things. And then he keeps going. And he gives this illustration with these two kinds of cloth. Have you ever made the critical error of sending something through the laundry and then pulling out what appeared to be a micro version of that article of clothing? I had a sweatshirt one time. Now Evie wears it. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, we've, we've done that, right? We've put stuff through the laundry. We had the wrong... I don't, I don't know how to do laundry. I'm really bad at it. When I went to college, my mom made an Excel spreadsheet for me to help me figure out which, which buttons to press because I didn't know what I was doing. I still have not gotten that good at it. Right? We've ruined clothing in the wash because it shrinks, right? Okay. Here's what he says. He says, we can't take a new, unshrunk piece of cloth, brand new, and sew it onto a garment to fix a hole in that garment if the garment is old and already shrunk. Why? Well, because you, you'll launder it, and the new piece will shrink and pull away from the old piece. And it won't just, it won't just not fix the hole, it will make a bigger mess. It will tear away from the cloth. So if you need a patch, the best thing to do is, is find a pre-shrunk piece of cloth. And so that there, or so I've been told. I don't know how to sew anything. The point, you would find an older piece of cloth to repair the garment or a pre-shrunken piece of cloth. It would be of no help for you to try to put two things together that simply cannot go together. In the process of putting together those two things, you are setting that up for failure. And then he says this. He gives another example with the new wine and the old wineskins. But it's the same example. He's just using different terminology. See, when wine was made at this time, it was placed in these, these goatskin pouches to age. And as it aged and fermented, the wine would release gas and it would cause the skin itself to expand and, and stretch. And then, when it was expanded and stretched and it was aged, then you would be able to drink the wine out of the skin. But if you were to take an old skin that had already been expanded and stretched, fill it with new wine and close it up, the same fermentation and aging process would happen. 
And as it did, it would force the, this container to swell again. And it would force it to swell beyond its capacity, beyond its elasticity. And what that would do is it would cause the skin to burst. And then you lost both the vessel and the contents. Because now you can't use the skin and your wine is all over the ground. Okay. So what are we supposed to do with that? He's saying the only way to avoid that mess was to put new wine into new skins because they had the ability to stretch and respond to the, the aging process of the wine that was within them. And all of that came because he asked them, he was asked why your disciples don't fast. So here's what R.C. Sproul said about it. With these metaphors, Jesus was saying in essence, you cannot take the new and force it into the old structures because the old structures cannot bear it. He was not condemning Old Testament law of God. No, no, Jesus fulfilled the law of God, every jot and tittle. Jesus did not condemn the law of God, and he did not wipe it away. He fulfilled it perfectly for us. What he was condemning, though, was the traditions that had developed among the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people. He was warning them that their king had come, and they would not be able to deal with this king unless they got rid of the structures that made it impossible for them to receive him. Something so transcendentally new had happened that they could not receive Christ in their lives without themselves being made new. It would be impossible to be a Christian and to keep the old way. That's the example that Jesus is, is getting at. All right, so what? What does that mean for us what, so what, how are we supposed to apply that? We are thousands of years away, an entire culture removed. So what does that mean for you and me? Here are, here are a couple things that I think we can notice this morning. One, we, we can't help but to see in this passage that oftentimes the things that we culturally associate with righteousness might not actually be the things that God associates with righteousness. In fact, I would go, go as far as to say that they are incompatible and actually at odds with each other. What do I mean by that? Well, the mind of the, the, mind of the person who's not connected to God through faith, the, the Bible would call them the unbeliever. That doesn't mean they don't believe in anything. It means they're not connected to Jesus through faith. The mind of that person is darkened in his understanding. There are things about life and about God and about the, the, um, the, pro, the plan of redemption that God is bringing. There are things he just doesn't understand because the Spirit hasn't given him the ability to see them yet. That person's mind is darkened and they believe that their moral standing with God, their position on God's scoreboard, is actually based on their good deeds. That if they could just be obedient enough, if they could just master the, the, um, the dark inclinations of their heart, if they could just stop drinking, if they could just stop cursing, if they could stop being such a hateful person, then, then God would receive them and love them more and, and be kind to them. 
they have believed the lie that their own hands can somehow close the gap between a holy and a perfect God and their sinful mess that they live in. And that's not judgmental. We all need to hear that. Like we say all the time, I might call you a sinner. That doesn't mean you're worse than me. That means you're not Jesus. That's simple. That's all I'm saying. It means you're not as good and holy and righteous as Jesus. Okay, the mind who is darkened thinks that his good deeds can get him to heaven. The mind of the believer, though, that person whose heart has been quickened and made alive by the Spirit of God, they understand something very powerful here. They understand that their only hope is not in their own works of obedience, but in receiving the gift of Christ's righteousness, his perfect record. Basically, what we say, what Christians, what we say is, my obedience can't close the gap, but Jesus' obedience to the point of death on the cross can. And so I will trust him where I will fail. That's, that's the essence of Christianity. The essence of the gospel is that the righteousness of Christ is, is available to us and good standing with God and oneness with him and reconciliation with him and a heart that knows and loves him. All of that is available to us, but it's not available the way we think it is because we've been conditioned to think by our, I think by the culture we live in, by the world we live in, and because our hearts are darkened and they are, we are sons of Satan. We've been conditioned to think that if I work hard enough and I have good intentions, then I can close the gap. But Paul reminds us it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to God's mercy that he saves us. Okay, that is the central point of the gospel. It is central today. The things that we might think of or culturally look at as religious and righteous are often not the things that God would see as righteous. And secondly, and this is the most important piece. This thing that God is doing here, this thing that God is unfolding in the pages of Mark, the, the thing that God is bringing about through Jesus of Nazareth, and the thing that he's continuing to, to do today through his church, is not a matter of rehabbing an older form of religion into a new one. Did you hear that? It's not a matter of grabbing the old structure and just painting the walls. It's not a matter of, of, it's not a house flip where we just rip it back to the studs and put up some new sheetrock without ever addressing the foundation. This thing that Jesus is doing is entirely new. It is a total transformation. This is not a rehab project, but this is tearing one building down and laying a new foundation and building again. And the gospel of Christ delivers to us a righteousness that simply cannot be earned in the old way. And, and some of you might be hearing like, okay, but I'm not, I'm not an uber-religious person. What do you mean? Well, I get that. What I'm saying is, the way that you're living life apart from God cannot do what a life in Christ can. It cannot lead you to faith and repentance. It cannot lead you to places of, of immense and overflowing joy. It cannot close the gap between your sinfulness and Christ's righteousness. It cannot secure a home in heaven. It, if you trust in your own abilities to do all of that, you will be sorely mistaken and terribly Terribly discouraged. No, the gospel of Christ delivers to us a righteousness that can't be earned the old way. 
and the coming of the kingdom of God that is signified in this new thing, this has begun here in Mark. And remember in Isaiah chapter 43, God announces that he's doing this new thing. That he chose Israel for his own possession. That these are his people. They are the object of his love and his affection. And so he's, he's going to pour out springs of living water on them. He's going to turn the desert into an oasis for them. He's going to satisfy their longings for them. And he's going to receive their heartfelt praise. And they are to give no thought to their previous ways. Because it's a new thing that he's doing. And with this new thing... We find its fulfillment right here in the pages of Mark's gospel as Christ comes to bring a new kingdom. And this new thing produces new people. So radical and complete and utter is this new thing that people are transformed into something altogether different. And in Christ, we are not the same. We are new creations. The old has passed away and all things, he says, have become new. And that means that the slave to sin has been released from bondage and is now a son or a daughter of God. That means those who are sick of soul have been healed radically through faith. That means the dead are raised to life and we have been born again to a living hope. What does all of that mean? There is a reason that this new way of Jesus, this new kingdom of God, doesn't look like the old structures of human religion. It was incompatible with them. It warred against them. The old structures of of pharisaical ordinances were in direct opposition to the way of Jesus. And some of us, hear me out today, some of us grew up in religious communities. And the way that we were taught that our standing with God depended on our own works and our own efforts, that way is incompatible and at odds with the way of Jesus. So the gospel came to us and it was offensive Because we said, hold on a second, I do my best. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm faithful to my wife. I don't drink too much. Hold on, I'm a good person. Compared to who? Compared to your neighbor, maybe, but your neighbor's a bum. Compared to Jesus? No. No. The old structure of religious obedience is incompatible. Again, he's not talking about the Old Testament law of God. That had its purpose to be our taskmaster to hold us until the the time was right for Christ to come. He's talking about the religious clutter that surrounded it. And the way that people tied their standing with God to their obedience to all those other rules and regulations. Have you ever experienced that new life in Christ that we're talking about? Have you you ever come to the end of your religious devotion? Did you you ever, and I know some of your stories, I know you have. I know you were confronted with the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross to be the payment for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day, securing once and for all victory over sin, over death, over hell and the grave. And that if by faith in him, we could have eternal life and abundant life right here. I know some of you heard that message and were wrestling with your own religious checklist. And said, hold on, I taught Sunday school. I gave good money to that church. My name's on the building. I gave so much money. Hold, what do you mean? I served, I helped. I was the PTA president. Hold on, I'm a good person. That's not the question. The question is, do you possess the transforming righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And you don't get that through your PTA service. You only get that by ceasing, by stopping, by literally falling out at his feet on your face in humility and crying out for grace and forgiveness. You only get that work when you stop working for it and receive his work for you. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, there's a reason you can't make it all work. And hear me today. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you, where you come from. I don't know what your story is today. But some of you in this room are trying and beating your head against the rocks and you can't make it work. And the reason is the old way that you're trying to live is incompatible with the new kingdom of God. And what you need today is let him tear it all down. You need to, in faith, fall at his feet and ask for forgiveness and grace and let him build it all the way back up. Take it all down, lay a new foundation of Christ and his grace and build from there. And you might say, all right, what do I have to do to do that? You don't have to do anything, that's the point. That's the great scandal of the gospel. The religious people are offended because the sinners get it. Amen, amen, because that's where he found me. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. Why not? Let him rebuild this thing today. Let him, lay, let, let him tear it all down. Let him lay a new foundation and build from there. Build your life on the rock of Christ Jesus. Build your life on wisdom and the truth of the scriptures. Stop trying to fix this the old way and instead turn to Christ and live this new way by his power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful and it is rich and it is true and it is authoritative over our lives. And God, we struggle sometimes to submit to it. So God, we ask for your help today that we would yield to its teaching and its power. That we would see ourselves in this passage. God, not as those who are, who are holding on to the old way, but help us be those who hands open and heart abandoned are leaning into this new way of Jesus. Trusting not our own religious deeds, but your good work for us. God, let us be a people whose lives are marked by this new work, this gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room who just need that fresh touch today. They need to be reminded once again of where they were and what you've done. I pray that they'd be encouraged today and built up, that you would grow them, that you would increase their faith and their joy in you. I pray for those in the room, God, who are still living in that old way, still wrestling with the call of Jesus on their lives, that today would be a day of surrender for them, that they would yield, that they would bow their knee and their heart, that they would cry out to you for forgiveness and grace that in the quietness of this moment they would ask that you would save them because they're a sinner and they're in need. Lord, I pray that you would give the faith to believe, seal them with your Holy Spirit in you, strengthen them to walk the new way of Jesus. God, may we be a church that is marked by this new way of Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray.